0: This is Lizzie Oziel, Vision Movement, and you're listening to The Next Stage Podcast. I'm here in Jerusalem with Rabbi Huda Cohen. How you doing?
1: Always a pleasure to do these shows together with you.
0: Yeah, agreed. And our special guest, Mr. Jonathan Pollard.
2: Hi to everyone.
0: So, Jonathan, I actually wanted to ask you, are you sensing a little bit of a shift occurring in the Israeli public in terms of how we perceive our relationship to the United States?
2: The short answer to that is yes, I do. Um, there are a lot of people who for various reasons have become aware of the inadequacy and the unfairness of the US-Israel special relationship. This comes about through various means. The latest one is uh, the realization that um, they're not exactly, the US is not exactly a reliable supplier of military equipment. There are political strings attached to it, which shouldn't have come as a shock to anybody, but um, it's now becoming very aware, people are becoming more aware, rather, that um, unless we become more independent, more self-sufficient in our military production capability, we will be at the mercy of the United States. And if we have differing strategic interests, which countries always do, we will be at a disadvantage, a terrible disadvantage, in fact. The other thing, the other issue that has really awakened people to the um, the true nature of the U.S.-Israel relationship is the attitude that the uh, Biden administration has towards, well, the war in Gaza, where they seem to be more concerned about... Uh, turning the area over to the PA, um, then they are helping us uh, finish this war, and uh, then figuring out what we're going to do afterwards, the day the, the day after. So on these two issues, uh, the issue of military dependence on the U.S. and the issue of um, a dichotomy between our need to end this war effectively, as quickly and as Uh, efficiently as possible with as few Israeli casualties uh, as possible. And the Biden administration's uh, policy, which is really part of a two-state solution, which I think has shocked most people. I can only end this with a a story, a quick story, where I talked to a lot of evacuees from the north and from the south. So I was talking to a group of evacuees from the south, at um, the, D- the Dan Panorama Hotel down the street from where we live and um, I asked them um, how do you see the day after or would you be good with a, a new fence would you be good with better border fortifications would you be good with Israeli uh, security control over Gaza etc and um, everybody looked at one another and A woman who obviously was the spokesperson for this group got up and said we want to see Israeli flags in Israeli communities from one end to the other and I she said I for one am NOT going back until that's the case she said I was in a community that was overrun and she said I got away with by the skin of my teeth Uh, she said I was a Kaplan force uh, supporter and she said, I hate them now. And so I said, well, who did you vote for, if I may ask, in the last election? And she said, for minutes. And I said, who are you voting for now? And she said, I don't know of anybody right wing enough to vote for. And I said, okay, <laughs> thank you for your candor. And um, so to answer your question, yes, there has been a, a, in some cases, gradual, and in other cases, radical awakening and by the way, her attitude towards the United States right now, I I can't really express um, in mixed company. It was quite profane and uh, angry. I'll put it that way.
1: That's the question, meaning we see a lot of radicalization right now in Israeli society. A lot of that is directed against Palestinians, but how much of that can be shifted towards a Deeper awareness of how our relationship with the United States actually harms us and has led to the situation, meaning the disengagement of 2005, for example, is the reason we find ourselves in this situation. Like, There's a direct line.
2: There's, this, I mentioned, because I say things that are politically incorrect, mm-hmm. I mentioned the fact that I thought it was ironic mm-hmm. that most of you people, I said to them in the audience, were members of Kibbutzim that laughed and waved at all the expellees during the Hitnaqut, uh, the disengage, so-called disengagement. I see it, I said, I see you're not laughing anymore. And I wanted to make that point, mm-hmm. because what they did was atrocious. To laugh at people being thrown out of their homes who were actually defending them on the front lines. And I said, Do you understand that? Yes, they understand that. I said, Did you understand that before October seventh? And the answer was, no, no. The old expression is, a conservative is a liberal that gets punched in the face. I think it's actually very apt, the phrase
1: that a conservative is a liberal who's been punched in the face or mugged by reality or whatever, however the the saying goes. But I, I think on a deeper level, that's saying something very true, that that is what a conservative is. A conservative is somebody who's living in this liberal ideological paradigm and has experienced a dose of reality, but he hasn't moved out of that paradigm. Now, what we need to do is not merely shift the Jewish people from the liberal side of that paradigm to the conservative side, but we actually want to break our people free from that paradigm. Meaning, like, we have forces trying to westernize our society, Israeli society, by turning us into liberals, like the New Israel Fund. And we have forces that are trying to... And
2: progressives. Uh, I'll go beyond that which is infinitely more da- dangerous.
1: Okay, the argument I'm making is that conservatives are dangerous too. Because they cons- can be. C- you know? conservatives are still living in the illusion that we're part of Western civilization.
2: Well, I lost that illusion a long time ago.
1: Right, well, you're not a conservative. You're no. a Jewish
2: nationalist. Um, yes, well, these unfortunate people were, they weren't punched in the face. They were slaughtered mm-hmm. in unspeakable ways. And so, okay, they're aware. People say, well, how aware how, can they be if, you know, they're so, the Kaplan force is still demonstrating. And I try to explain to people what happened after Tony Blinken's first meeting with the so-called War Cabinet. He went from that meeting to a meeting with brothers in arms, um, Kaplan force and um, breaking the silence. They were there also. I heard the tape where he told all these groups, this is what we need. You help us, we help you. What is it? What's the quid pro quo? He said, we need you to change the objective of the war from destroying Hamas to rescuing the hostages and then an unlimited ceasefire at that point so that we can can bring in the PA and have the ceasefire, I mean, and have the two-state solution, whatever. And the second part of that is when you go to elections, people will automatically blame uh, Bibi Netanyahu and the coalition that he heads, and they will vote them out. Uh, we're being set up by the Americans for this two-state solution. Yeah. So, relentless. In and strategic. Remi- and strategic right. in reminding people. I mean, I don't see anybody, particularly in the Likud, that I would characterize as a Jewish nationalist. That puts this country first. There might be a distinction here. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you
1: the disagreement I have with you. I think that out of all the potential candidates for prime minister right now, Yair Lapid, Naftali Bennett, uh, there's a lady present, but <laughs> uh, I, I almost right. said something. <laughs> Gallant, Gallant, right? Um, Netanyahu okay. and Gantz, Benny Gantz, Correct. right? Of all of them. I think that whether it's whether it's authentic or inauthentic, the only one who uses rhetoric that implies a conflict, some kind of contradiction between our interests and American interests, is Netanyahu. So now maybe no maybe he means it. Maybe he really does deep down view this as a situation in which we are vassals of the United States Correct. that need to break free. Maybe he believes that, maybe I he doesn't. You don't, don't, don't think he does. But, no. he, but as a prime minister, who wants to be prime minister some more, the fact that he uses this language might actually present an opportunity to spread awareness of the fact that there's something unhealthy in this
2: relationship. I it legitimizes
1: a conversation, and in, it's an important conversation that we need to have. In every
2: speech mm-hmm. I give, I bring up this issue of exactly what kind of ally the United States is. How would you define the relationship between Israel and the United States? Is it a relationship of equals? And everybody laughs and says no. I said, is it a relationship of a vassal to an empire? And most people, I can see the looks on their faces that the answer is yes. And I said, is this what we've waited 2,000 years for? And people, don't again, look down. They don't want to really confront this fact. And I said, well, as far as I'm concerned, the relationship is equivalent in my mind between an abused wife and her abusing husband. And the wife just can't find it in herself to walk away from this, this animal that she married.
0: Although I happen to think that there is a very clear um, awakening kind of happening in Israel, like we discussed before, amongst the population, but even a- amongst the politicians, that someone like Nir Barkat, who up until now has not been, you know, involved in anything regarding criticizing the American-Israel relationship, came out and said, you know, we got to start reevaluating this and not looking weak.
2: The problem is he's taking advantage mm-hmm. of a new awareness on the part of people. Look, Hold that thought for a second. Okay. Okay. Where did that come from? It came from an article in the Wall Street Journal that went viral. And the article said that we are losing soldiers, Khayyali soldiers, because the Americans have come down on us for using aerial attack, tank fire, artillery support. And that um, because we have ratcheted back our use of these uh, assets, our casualties are going up. So what happened, there was such a backlash, and I I follow polling very carefully. I have friends who were in the business and they let me have a peek behind the curtain. And it was a couple days later after it became known where the polling was going that Barcott came out with his statement. I mean, you can, it's linear. Mm-hmm. You can actually track it all the way through. Uh, these guys, people like Barkat, people like um, any one of them, Bibi, um, they don't do anything until their pollsters have told them mm-hmm. what where the numbers are falling. So I don't believe anything these guys say because, first of all, they are not grounded in any ideology. Forget you know, uh, Jewish nationalism, Jabotinsky uh, uh, philosophies of the Iron Wall, uh, classical Torah-based uh, Jewish nationalism. None of that. They don't have any of this at all. And I know a lot of these guys. And, you know, they look at me like some kind of uh, prehistoric freak. You know, you actually believe in the land of Israel? Eretz HaKodesh, the holy... Really? That's... that's quaint. That's what they say. It's quaint. So to pick up where you left off, and I think it was very perceptive on your part to point at Nir Barkat with this, that he's suddenly adopting this, the, the rhetoric, Yehuda, as you would say, the rhetoric, if not the substance of well, this turn. I mean, I actually...
0: The- with, with Nir Barkat, I mean, he's he's one example of that. But the, the Nir Barkat comment came, actually, I think it was a day before or maybe earlier in the day of another report, which is that another MP, I'm not sure exactly which one, expressed really grave disappointment in Bibi because apparently there was a strike, like Take Gaza out of the picture for a second. Let's look at Hezbollah and the threat that they present on our northern border. Um, apparently, like, there was plans to actually launch a preemptive strike because that's... Yes, and, and
2: and uh, Biden talked BB out of... Yeah. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. But what's interesting so, is that the other ministers, and and I would say, like, popular opinion in the country, is that we essentially should be at war with Hezbollah right okay, now. Okay, like, but here's
2: the problem. I mean, if, if you look at the uh, the story that came out after that Wall Street Journal story, that there were only two ministers that voted for war mm-hmm. on the northern border. Uh, Yoav Galant, the minister of defense, and Itamar ben For whatever you want to say, we're looking at facts right now. Those were the only two. Um, the fact of the matter is, and, and this is a difficult thing to say, but I'll say it anyway, we really can't launch a comprehensive, decisive war against Hezbollah, and we couldn't. Even back then when it was on the table and Yoav Gallant in particular was pushing for a what he thought should have been a preemptive not preventive, but a preemptive strike mm-hmm. um, today I heard stories that were were restricting the use of heavy armaments
0: I heard the same right in see.
2: Gaza in order to build up a reserve for the north there isn't There's no fat, there's no surplus in the South that would qualify as a war-winning reserve, material reserve for Lebanon. Mm -hmm. So what are we talking about? Right now, we're facing strategic defeat on the northern border. There was talk, Bibi was running his mouth about we're going to push Hezbollah north of the Latani. Okay. First of all, the main threat to Israel is not actually from the southern uh, forces like Radwan and others, because we've got forces up on the border now, so it would be almost a suicide mission on their part to come across. But the missiles, the precision-guided missiles north of the Latani, so f- leaving you know a bloody trail of soldiers up to the Latani, we're, we're still facing a threat. To all our strategic sites in the South, they could literally on the first volley uh, put us back in the Stone Age. No power stations, no water purification plants, no sewage treatment plants Our hospitals are on fire. It would be a disaster. One day. One day. So what are we looking at now? I mean, we we absolutely cannot launch a decisive land invasion of Lebanon without incurring a butcher's bill yielding nothing at the end of the day on the on the latani that's it like okay we're here now what well the Rodman is right there and they still have missiles that are dominating us when I asked yesterday I went to another hotel that had a lot of people from the north Metula, Kereshmona, Shlomi you know, all these places they are mad as hell why They asked the government representatives a simple question, when can we go home? And the answer was, uh, well, maybe at the end of January, maybe at the end of February, and they got very angry, and the representatives of the government basically said, tough, and walked out. And and in response to the uh, question, what about money? You know, we don't have businesses, we don't have anything that are running. He had no answer. The fact of the matter is strategically, right now Hezbollah has accomplished their mission our northern frontier has been depopulated 75% of our orchard agriculture is uh, dead just as 75 about 75% of our uh, ground agriculture vegetable crops in the south have been destroyed so they're sitting there they know we're not coming across the border yes Radwan is pulled back a bit, their special operations force is pulled back about a bit. That's just being prudent on their part, or it's something else. In a presentation by an unnamed high-ranking official, ranking official in the Knesset Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee, the man admitted that um, we're not going across the border, that if the uh, Hezbollah and the Iranian-allied militias just pull back a few kilometers, that's good enough for us. Once the high-intensity
1: phase of the Gaza operation has completely wound down, you're not expecting a strike on Hezbollah?
2: I'm expecting, you know, your usual aerial strikes Mm -hmm. and artillery bombardments and uh, smoke and mirrors and all that. Um, Depending on what the Hezbollah does, what the Iranians do in response to this latest Mm -hmm. uh, targeted strike against the IRGC commander in Syria, which was a A good strike yeah it was a righteous strike um depending on what they do or don't do um if we go across the border even one or two kilometers we will pay a butcher's bill simple as that our forces are still not fully equipped we do not have a war reserve of uh, material sufficient to last if they fight back in any effective way which they will So the option at that point is if we roll the, as Ludendorff would say, the iron dice of war, it could come up snakeheads. And even if we reach the Latani and declare a great victory, and we say we killed half of the Radwan force, which we wouldn't, but if if we announce great uh, enemy casualties, the number of our own casualties will hang over every statement that this government and the military stay and they will come out as exhibit a as an indictment against the government and the military when we go to elections
0: well well this is kind of where i want to circle this back to the question of america's role in this whole situation because we already addressed that there's some rumors rumblings that are likely true that our munitions stockpile is not quite at the position that like in a place that it should be in terms of us being well equipped to go to war against Lebanon properly. And at the beginning of the war, there was actually it came out that Israel is trying to increase their own domestic weapons productions. And so when you look at this all together, this new rhetoric that's emerging from politicians questioning the pressure from America, plus this issue of you know how are we going to have enough munitions to really go to war when it's necessary for us to do so? Do you think that this is a sustainable trend? Do you think that this trend is going to keep growing in the future, and that there's going to be support for actually decreasing um, our reliance on American military, like weapons, and also reevaluating the kind of relationship we have with them because these weapons right. usually come with strings. I don't see
2: any alternative. Because right now, the only alternative, and I've I've written about this and I've spoken about it before groups, with permission, because what I'm going to say is very controversial, there are non-conventional weapons, well, let's be honest about this, just uh, nuclear weapons, which uh, we have at various strengths, uh, yields or kilotonnage or megatonnage, that are available. Now, do we really want to be in that position? where our only recourse, say in the north, is to employ such weapons. Because once you let the genie out of the bottle, Cast then, well, there's Damascus and there's Tehran and there's a whole bunch of other places where I've advocated their use, okay? So, rationally, you don't want to get to that position. You just don't. Mm-hmm. Because the world will be very, as the world was different from us for us after October 7th, if we were to employ these weapons in any way, shape, or form, the world would be in a different place after that. So if you don't want to go the unthinkable route, then you're going to have to produce your own conventional weapons to a level that's sufficient to allow you to do whatever you think is appropriate to defend your strictly defined national interests. Well, we're not there right now, and people are, are gonna suddenly realize at the end of the day that B.B. saying to everybody, I'd like to go to war, but the Americans won't let. Everyone will know what that means. We don't have the ability to act on our own, on our own interests. So at that point, the need to shift to our own domestic production will be compelling. I'll tell you something funny. The first speech that Bibi gave to a joint session of Congress after he became prime minister many many years ago, he said something remarkable. He said, "I don't. We don't need your economic support anymore. Thank you very much. We're on our feet. We're fine. And as far as the military uh, appropriations that we get from you every year at the time, we would like to shift. I would like to shift to joint R and D projects and joint production projects and." Make it a little bit more balanced. And that disappeared very quickly. Why? Because American military assistance is actually corporate welfare for the American military-industrial complex. Mm -hmm. So I think people are waking up to this. And after I wrote this latest article in the Jerusalem Post about the M-16s that are being embargoed people came up to me and they said, why aren't we producing our own? They're battle rifles. I mean, we make, as I pointed out, we make two of the best. Um, The Arad being really the best M16 modification in the world. Okay, and our bullpup weapons. There are a whole range of bullpup weapons we make, the Tabor. And people suddenly realized that if we're dependent to that level where we can't produce battle rifles, all these other things are just intolerable. So when I'm in a debate with somebody and they say, well, you know, what do you expect us to develop an F-35? And I said, well, this is an argument that was really debated many years ago over the... The uh, uh, The La, Vie. The La Vie. And there was a situation where we could have produced a premier uh, world-winning uh, fighter bomber. It, it would have just... Captured the entire market. Now, having said that, yes, it was done in collaboration with McDonnell Douglas, but that's not the point. They would have been produced in Israel. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when we backed off that for reasons that are shocking, short-sighted, that set the standard. So I've asked people, like, can you point to one sophisticated weapon system that we're making right now, offensive weapon system that we're making on our own? don't give me Iron Dome, which we can only sell with American uh, permission, uh, or the aero system, which again...
0: Not the tanks, the Merkava.
2: Okay. That's an interesting question that you raise. I've asked that question mm-hmm. because there's a huge market for that in Eastern Europe right now. And the attitude is we don't want to interfere with the Americans.
0: Right. So it's becoming increasingly clear for both Israelis, like internally, um, right now and even on the political level and in the military industrial complex of Israel level that it makes a lot of sense for us to start developing our own weapons and America's kind of holding us back from this and we Correct. kind of need to start reevaluating this relationship we have with them and I think America senses that on some level that that's the temperature of Israel and I know that you've been very vocal about how the dangers of the the free the hostages movement we you brought it up a little mm-hmm. bit earlier but I, I want to revisit that point um, and how those that movement is actually connected to the US administration um, but this issue is kind of obscured by the media so could you kind of lay that out in in connection to all these things we're discussing about this shifting tide of Israeli desires to kind of be more independent
2: right.
0: and this free the hostages movement that kind of has this American involvement.
2: Okay, look. Um when the war broke out on October 7th, the Kaplan force and the, the anti-judicial reform movement, I'll put it that way, was at a standstill and at a loss in terms of relevancy. Where were they going? Uh, they didn't want to lose their, their momentum. Uh, they thought they had the government on the ropes, etc. And they were actually rescued by the Biden administration, which strongly urged them, and I heard this myself, strongly urged them to shift the narrative from uh, the crime minister and all these other fake slogans to cover their attempted coup d'etat of a regime they just didn't like, to rescuing the hostages, which would be predicated on an open-ended ceasefire the net result of which would have been the rescue of Hamas because of all the obvious advantages that Hamas would have by um, having breathing room at that point. So, if you look at what they did, they followed their instructions to a T. Now, I contacted some people who were responsible for managing the hostage issue for the government. And I told one of them in particular, a very close friend of mine, a general, um, you have to bring the hostage families in. I said, most of them will go along with you because they're okay, but there's a small percentage and they're gonna be problematic. So you have to bring them in, you have to more or less co opt them, bring them in, give them a table, coffee, good pastry, and let them see firsthand what's going on, with the proviso that they keep their mouths shut, because this is national security. But they can come in, okay? He liked the they, the various people I talked. to liked the idea. Well, when it ran by when it was run by, Bibi. He said no. He didn't want them included in anything. And worse than that. The Americans had already gotten involved mm-hmm. and through Brothers in Arms and through Kaplan force at this point there were a few days where B.B. delayed his sense of timing is not so good so he delayed before he finally said no and in those few days um, what I, w- I had warned my friends about materialized the the, the issue was co-opted by the left. And I said, the minute you do th- they do that, it's over. We're going to have a real problem on our hands. And this is what happened. Mm-hmm. So when people ask me, look, um, don't you think that the rescue of the hostage should, hostages should be equal, on an equal level to, the, um, to victory over Hamas? I say no. Absolutely not, I'm sorry. Sometimes the needs of the many uh, take precedence over the needs of the few. Um, every soldier that goes into battle knows this. People who live on the frontier know this. People who live in the territories know this. And if you look at a lot of the, the wills that soldiers left, they said quite plainly, do not bargain for me, my body, whether it's I'm dead or alive. Do not bargain. Okay, well, there was a tremendous uh, opinion piece written in the Jerusalem Post by a friend of mine, David Weinberg, on this whole issue. And he called me up before and said, you know, I'm going to rescue you. And I would recommend anybody who is conflicted on this issue of the hostages should read this. And he was quite clear in this piece also about the Americans getting back to this, the main issue here, Mm -hmm. that they should basically keep their mouths shut and stay out of our business. I mean, they have hostages also. They have American citizens. The United States has never, I don't care what administration it was, they have never given a damn about American Jews who have been murdered in this country, ever. Mm -hmm. Mostly because, and I think people understand this now when they look at what's going on down at the Bab el-Mandev in the Red Sea, the, the, with the coalition of, I call it the coalition of the unwilling.
0: Wasn't it down disbanded? Sure. I heard the Americans back down from that entire idea.
2: No, they still have a coalition force down okay. there, but it's a, there's a question as to what exactly they're going to do. Right. I mean, if you're not going to sink the Iranian command control slash surveillance ship that is directing all these missile and drone strikes against merchant ships and you're not going to strike uh, preventively uh, the ground-based assets of the Iranians their cruise missiles anti-ship cruise missile batteries their drone launching areas and production areas if you're not going to do that then what are you left with well you're left with maybe hanging around the area shooting down drones uh, with 1.5 to $2.5 million missiles against 50 to $60,000 drones, the math doesn't work, nor does the nu- do the numbers, because these ships, all of them, have a finite number of interceptor missiles, and when those missiles are used up, well, they have to come off the battle line. Those mm-hmm. ships then have to go get resupplied somewhere, and this is going to become a very expensive, complicated affair, and Americans don't want any part of this. Why? Because if you sink that surveillance ship and you start interdicting the air defense, well, the cruise missile batteries and things like that on shore, you're gonna be killing Iranians. And that is why the Americans aren't doing anything. Look, just now, there were three American service members that were, one was critically injured, the other two were are all right, apparently, in a Iraqi Shiite militia attack. Yeah. And, you know, after, it was funny reading the um, Potomac two-step that happened after that. This person was contacted, that person was contacted, they had to wake up Joe Biden, tell him what year it was, you know, all of these things. And they finally figured out, well, these are the targets, you know, we should hit. Make sure there's nobody there and, you know, okay, fine. Clearly, the bureaucratic process is alive and well in the United States. You're supposed to take a uh, targeting folder off. And then execute well they don't do that apparently in this administration so the Iranians already understand that the Americans fundamentally do not want to get into a shooting war with them why the reason simply put and the Iranians know this and most Israeli strategists understand this America's strategic fixation is on the Indo-Pacific with a war with China yeah right well Taiwanese businessmen that I'm involved with are telling me, you know, we're we're looking at America's inaction with yeah. a with a problem and a threat that is easily neutralized. Nobody in Taiwan believes that the Seventh Fleet is going to get involved with stopping a Chinese invasion, amphibious invasion of Taiwan, which is a whole order of of threat uh, larger than what they're facing now. Yeah. So, when I talk to a lot of Israeli politicians and strategists, such as they are, and I start asking them for their opinion of the American um, role down on the Red Sea in the Babel Manda at the choke point, mm-hmm. uh, there's embarrassed silence, and then the truth comes out. And they say, Well, we know they really don't want to do anything, but they have to because international. Maritime interests are involved. If it were just us, if their targeting was a little bit better There wouldn't be any interest by the Americans. Okay, yeah So that issue also is is turning a lot of people's minds around that that the United States is just unreliable but we have a problem in terms of practically
1: Getting free of American control and being independent and not relying on them for arms and parts, et cetera. Uh, one of the problems I think we have is something I've heard you say many times, that it's pretty common practice for many of our military top brass when they retire to get cushy jobs with American weapons companies. Correct. Which essentially makes them lobbyists for the U.S. arms industry. Correct. So as long as that's happening, there becomes a culture uh, in our top military echelons of wanting to continue the relationship and wanting to continue receiving these weapons and and not shifting over to self-sufficiency. So how can we, if, if we do say there's an opportunity right now politically in terms of the public mood to get free of American dominance, to be able to develop the weapons we need for ourselves so we're not dependent on them in times of conflict, How can we do that if our top generals are still existing within a cultural framework where it's, for lack of a better term, cool to promote the relationship?
2: Right, well, the Americans faced that same problem. There were many scandals involving uh, top Pentagon officials, both uniformed and civilian, who were caught making decisions that advantaged certain corporate entities, military industrial entities, that the minute they retired, they started working for it. Mm-hmm. That was an easy thing to pick up. When a general that was in charge of selecting a weapon system from competing bids, went out of his way to select one that he later, when he retired from the military, worked for. Well, that was clear, what was going on. So there was legislation passed preventing that. a eh, cooling off period, more or less. And it's the same thing here, where there's a cooling off period between a high-ranking officer retiring and moving into politics, Mm -hmm. for example. Well, the same thing could be done with um, preventing or stopping the employment by foreign arms producers of ex-high-ranking Israeli officers. It is a solid red line. You don't cross it. You do not work for them. A in off any capacity, or, or it should be illegal? No, it should be illegal. Yeah, I would agree. If you are the Ramat Kao, the uh, chief, chief of, of staff, staff.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: and you retire, and you eventually end up working for General Dynamics or Lockheed or Tails or some other military industrial company, I'm sorry. That shouldn't be, a, by law, that should be prevented. Mm-hmm. But, but it's not a legal issue because it hasn't been on the public's radar. Correct. Now it is. Right. Now it is, and you know this would be in a very, very important piece of uh, legislation that should be easily uh, supported by everybody, uh, because obviously, if you're not in favor of it, then what are you it's in favor of? It's suspicious, right? very <laughs> suspicious at that point.
1: Well, let's run an experiment. Why don't you try to find sixty-one members of Knesset who would support such a bill? Because there, there wouldn't be. Uh huh. Ah, so we have a problem.
0: Well, yet. Yeah. I think we have um, to see how the work okay, right. bit. Okay, you're
2: right. I, I, I misspoke. Y- yeah. Give it a couple weeks. <laughs> in a couple of weeks. Um, because everybody's on the payroll here. I mean, mm-hmm. the one thing I found out to my sorrow when I came home was the incredible degree of corruption that exists in this country. Um, it's not something that the average person really sees, but feels. Is present.
0: I think the average Israeli sees it very clearly. Um, Whenever I get into political conversations with Israelis, one of the number one things that they bring up to me is how they feel like the entire political system, that just corruption is rampant and it's essentially ruining the country. Well, corruption
2: is an interesting thing in this country because it's not like somebody or a company or a group of people have asked me for a bribe. They just want to know if their cousin can work for me. (laughs)
0: Right, protexia. It's like favoritism, nepotism. That's
2: the word. And I laugh about this because my father did a lot of business in South America with a biotech company, and he told me one thing, that you never go down, you don't pay one penny in bribes because there's no end to it at that point. The door is open, and your neck is on the line, so you keep paying. So um, I think right now, we, c- we could probably, in just a little bit, get legislation passed um, along these lines of preventing the revolving door. But I think we could also get legislation passed mandating a requirement for independent self-sufficiency, uh, however that's defined. Um, for example, people will say, in response to this, how do you expect us to build something like the F-35? Well, I'll tell you why. There are lots of countries that require co-production. India, I have a lot of respect for India. I've actually looked at their build India law, and you can't sell a piece of equipment to India unless it's built in India. Mm-hmm. Now, our market obviously is not as great as India, but that for these companies, where their margin of profits right now is razor thin, If we have, let's say, an order for 85 planes, and India has an order for 685 planes, the corporate officers are looking at this and saying, well, wait a second, this is back in the United States. Israel has a tremendous production capability. We do, actually, and we can use them for co-production. I've been pushing co-production for attack helicopters, for transports, for fighters. If you want to sell us equipment, Here's our buy Israel policy, okay? You want to sell those here or even give it to us, they have to be produced. So for example, I'll give you an example, the F-15X, which is a greatly modified version of the F-15. It's a tremendous airplane. It's light years better than the standard F-15. It's basically a bomber. Well, they have very limited production in the United States of this aircraft. And we have been debating in this country whether what the mix should be of F-15Xs and F-35s. Here's an example. Well, a, it doesn't take a genius to tell the military people or the politicians, go to Boeing and tell them, we will co-produce the F-15X with you so you can start selling them everywhere. And we, we get the you know, we can draw off the top for our needs. And when I've brought this point up to people, you know, they look at me like I'm naive. They said, well, the Americans would never agree to that. I said, I'm not talking about the Americans. I'm talking about Boeing. These guys have, you know, shareholders that they have to account for, too. So if you can open, if they can open up an assembly line here in Israel to produce the F-15X, that will let them you know, dominate the market, the international market for this type of airplane, they'll go for it. It doesn't represent a revolutionary type of technology like the F-35 where, you know, there are security reasons why the Americans want to keep that close hold. Although we make the wings. And that's another thing people don't realize. I, I
0: mean, I think that's also a really good point in general, just talking about like weapons production, whether we're doing it domestically or we're buying foreign weapons, you know, Necessity is the mother of invention, and when Israelis are pushed up against the wall and have to kind of figure out, you know, how they're going to equip themselves when, you know, no other country wants to equip them, we've developed some of the best weapons out there Correct. in those moments. And we're actually stifling our own internal production, creativity, technology, all of that kind of stuff by outsourcing all of this reliance. Okay,
2: there's another aspect to what you just said, and that is if you look at all these ideas for military reform, what are they based on? What are they talking about? They're all talking about defensive weapons, like the Iron Dome, like the arrow, things like that. Uh, so we can meet a future threat from Gaza. They actually say that. Or we could meet a possible threat. Now they've been saying now, that? Now, that's today. That's now, today. Or we could meet a threat from the territories, a rocket threat from the territories, or a, another threat, a ro- the rocket threat from from Lebanon. Okay, and I'm thinking to myself, what have we learned after October 7th? The best defense is a good offense. And you just, there are a few people saying, no, we need tanks and armored personnel carriers and we need a defensive doctrine. Those are kind of quiet voices.
0: Right, and, and in addition to that, if we're producing our own weapons, then there's less of the presence of this argument, well, you know, we can't make this military maneuver because the United States isn't going to support let, us and they'll let, cut us off let. with the weapons. Right. Won't we'll let. be able to kind of Trust be in the driver's me. seat.
2: Everybody is watching right now what the Americans are doing to us. The Ukrainians. What, what are the Ukrainians doing right now? It's Great question. They are now going to arms makers in Europe and the United States and asking for production facilities in the Ukraine. And people are saying, why are they doing that? They need equipment now. Yes, they're asking for equipment now with a condition, a little asterisk. We will accept your donated equipment on condition that you actually build a production facility in Ukraine. Wow. Wow. And they're fighting for their lives right now, and but they're still thinking ahead. They're in a lot worse position than we are. So I can only tell you the results of one effort that I've made since I came here, um, to advocate for a new Navy.
0: Yeah, we definitely get one of those. With
2: a real Navy, mm-hmm. with... Ships that could actually go down to the Bab el Mandeb and take care of our interest, strategic interest down there. Yeah. And um, I've been to various architecture firms here, naval architecture firms, and we've I've talked about various designs because I I have a degree in naval ship architecture, so I can actually speak intelligently about some things. And uh, yeah, we can come up with we can produce wonderful designs here. Perhaps in cooperation with India or Singapore or other countries, it's fine. we're not dependent on the United States. But the question always comes back to me, okay, if we're going to have a minimum of a hundred sailors on each ship that you want designed, some of which are going to be for export, um, we don't have the manpower pool for that. I said, you're wrong, we do. There's an argument that I had. Where are the people where, where are the bodies coming from? I said from the Haredi community. Why? As long as the ships are segregated, single sex, they can actually have um, like a Hester yeshiva on board. So they can mix their military service with learning. And they're going to be out on the high seas without being polluted by, you know, port visits with horrible places. Um, the draw, and they're paid, there's a pay differential. If you have things like that, I said, they'll be lined up to serve on board this kind of uh, vessel if these things are assured. So I said, that's, that's a straw man. That, that's not an argument I'm going to accept. Well, the women's groups are going to, you know, start screaming and yelling. I said, this is not a gender issue, a gender equality issue. This is a national security issue. And if we're going to draw from a new pool, To actually allow us to build out a high seas Navy that can fight and survive in a hostile environment, I don't think anybody's going to object to that.
0: I especially think if you sell it the right way in terms of, you know, there is a lot of discourse amongst certain sectors of Israeli society that Haredim don't contribute enough, they don't go to the army, this and that, and you package it in a way where it's like, listen, we've created this situation where Haredim can serve in the army in a way that's comfortable for them. It's like a new wing. We're not excluding women from any of the existing structures. It's specifically, especially for them. I actually think that could go off really, really well.
2: Well, we've seen a rising number of Haredi Guys uh, coming forward, and okay, they're given jobnik positions. But in addition to uh, serving on board ships, Ben Gvir's um, interest in forming a national guard, Mm -hmm. or as I call it, a territorial defense force, a TDF, could also draw on that same Haredi community, or um, to defend their own communities. I, I deal with a lot of, and it's strange to tell people this, a lot of uh, Haredi uh, community leaders that want to form local kind of self-defense groups, and they need guns. They need training. Well, people don't know about this. And when I tell them this, they think I'm smoking something. I said, no, I'll take you. I'll take you. I'll show you the, these. They, they will fight. Some of the most, if, if you think about it, the Haredim actually know how to fight. This is a very strange thing when I tell people this. They know how to fight. Why? Because they believe that they're fighting Al-Kiddush Hashem. They're not cowards. If it's their community and they agree with the fight and everything else, they'll be the strongest, bravest people on earth. They're defending Er Eretz So, So, we have an abundance of technological and human skills available to us, but they're not being used appropriately.
0: I have a lot of hope. I mean, it, it's coupled with, uh, I guess, a little bit of, um, let's say, trepidation, I wouldn't say fear, but you know, the fact that we're so closely allied with the United States, we're in this kind of bad situation where our munitions are a little bit low because we don't have enough domestic. Do you
2: know what I tell people? <laughs> when I get this, when I speak, when I get this,
0: uh-huh.
2: I say, I want you all to realize something, and I want you to think about this. We are the fifth largest nuclear power in the world. I want you to think about that for a second. Allegedly.
0: I mean, I totally... I'm not... Allegedly. I see it from that perspective, um, and I think why I guess I see um, a lot of positives coming out of this is the fact that the United States clearly is looking super weak right now and is also putting us in a really kind of bad position. Correct. And we know that we put ourselves in a bad Correct. position by being in relation to them. I think mm-hmm. as these events start to unfold, the Israeli public is going to start taking this upon themselves well, to I, start thinking yes, in the way I,
2: that you One group that I talked to... Um, I addressed a group of generals once, retired, but they were up there. And I asked them, um, why did we build Dimona and its products at great cost? And they said, for deterrence. And I said, well, here's a news flash, gentlemen. The enemy isn't afraid of us anymore. So that means we may actually have to use these weapons. Now,
0: or at least just make them think that we Well, be that's allegedly about-
2: what happened in 73 when the U.S., well, Kissinger, was sitting on the resupply that we needed in uh, the early days of the Yom Kippur War, and allegedly we let them photograph from space um, an airplane loaded with munitions, special munitions. And that allegedly opened up, you know, we don't want you to do that, you know. So when I was asked, what are we supposed to do if the Americans don't let us have something that we consider vital? Just a second. Well, I said, this is in a forum, right? And everybody's, you know, laughing at me because we got you. And I said, well, in a case like that, you send someone like me (laughs) to sit down with an American officer or political officer or whomever and say, look, we understand you don't want to give us this weapon, even though you kind of promised you would in the event of a war. So we're going to give you the option. Are you going to give us this weapon that you promised us to begin with, or would you like us to use a nuclear demolition weapon? The choice is yours. You make our choice for us. Which one is it going to be? So there was quiet. So I said, do you think that would work? See. <laughs> the heads are all nodding.
0: I don't know. I think it's been a couple decades since we even needed to have such a conversation like this where we've been in such a position where we're having these kind of existential conversations, meaning the intifadas were were internal struggles. They were threats we had to deal with, but it wasn't quite like We've
2: had incidents along the lines. For example, after we bombed the uh, Iraqi nuclear uh, reactor and, um, you know, there, there was actually an arms embargo put on us at that time. There were arms embargoes put on us when we went into Lebanon in 83 and people were uncomfortable but it wasn't existential this is existential right now this is, right so. now. Yeah. This is ex- and this is why I think now that we have everybody's attention um, it is no longer weird for us to have this conversation uh, and we're getting into the weeds right now as far as how we do this and why we should do this and this conversation we're having would not be out of the ordinary now this would not be an outlier This would not be an exception with people saying, Oh, you know, what are you talking about? The Americans are our valued allies. They're going to give us whatever we want. This, that. I'm not having that discussion anymore.
0: Right. I think for, I mean, if there's one takeaway that, I feel like our listeners have been taking away from our past couple episodes. It's a known thing that we talk about our relationship with America and reevaluating it, but I think it's become so glaringly obvious from this war how problematic that relationship really is, and how we actually do need to internally be having these conversations. Of, Could I how back do we get up free? for a second?
2: When I came here, and I've had this conversation with Yehuda,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I'm sorry that my Morah um, Esther is not here. Because she would be pointing at you and looking at me and saying, listen to him. I tried to tell you about this. And what did she try to tell me? Because I hear her through you every time I have a conversation with you. It's really very emotional for me. What is it? She was very sick when she came here. But she sat me down and a great effort because breathing for her was very difficult towards the end. And she said, I want to talk to you about something very important. She said, there is a war coming. Well, that didn't really bother me. I mean, we're always expecting a war here, one one type or another. That's our normal. So she said, but I'm sorry, I won't be here to help you. And that got my attention immediately. She said, the war we're going to be facing is the war over our identity. Mm -hmm. Because she said, that will shape the nature of our future. She said... The Geulah Shlema will come. The redemption will come. But it will either come with a shmice, a smack, October 7th, or it will come with a kiss, depending on our actions. If we know who we are and why we're different from everybody else and why we should inculcate in our children our differences from everybody else in the world, a nation that dwells apart uh, from the rest of the world with our children. They understand what they're fighting for. And so I listened to this and it was the first time I understood what the real problem was here. It's breaking the slave mentality. Mm -hmm. It's breaking 2,000 years of Galoot, which we all kind of thought had been broken in 1948, when, you know.
1: On a material level it was, but psychologically we haven't caught up yet. We
2: haven't caught up yet. And um, I think, I wish we could have gotten to this point, without October 7th.
1: It's clear that Israeli society has been
2: radicalized. Correct. In the
1: last couple
2: months. Couple months, correct. And I know, you know, when people keep asking me to run, Mm -hmm. I said, well, I have said, well, there is no political party right now that I would really feel comfortable with because there isn't any political party that expresses the uniqueness of Jewish nationalism. Because it's not just about being able to produce military equipment on our own. It's a mindset mm-hmm. where we don't, you know, w- there's a crisis. And the first thing you do is, you know, call the president of the United States. That isn't what you do. If you're going to, if you really are in a quandary, go Davin. People have asked me, for example, uh, wh- where did I get this uh, feeling about a uh, vengeance as being an acceptable way of dealing with the hostages? And I tell them there are three sources that I, I refer to. One of them is with uh, Shimon and Levi in Shechem, where they went and and rescued. Talk about, you know, campaign of swords of iron. Okay, they ran a great risk. And they were only 14 and 13 years old at the time. Correct. Um, Avram Avinu with Lot, fighting the four kings. I mean, he fought kingdoms with three, maybe 400 men. He fought. He went out and fought. 318. Okay. Who's counting? Okay. Who went out and fought? to retrieve this uh, nephew of his, you know, and, and Dovid the melech at Ziklag. He could have lost his entire his entire following, but it was important that he went out and fought for their return. You don't negotiate with Amlekim, which is what Hamas is. You think so? Yes. How do you, you feel about that? I disagree. Mm. You think Why I, do I, you disagree?
1: I disagree because I don't like us using Amalek for every enemy we face. I think Amalek means something very specific. There's a lot of people who are standing in the way of what we need to accomplish in history. But Amalek is something special that we have to eradicate. Can do, I ask do, do, a question? Do,
2: wait, 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 wait. Just one <laughs> second. Just one second. You know what happened down at Be'eri with regard to the sign outside their kibbutz right now? I didn't believe it when I saw it. We all know politically where they were on the spectrum, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. There's a sign outside the kibbutz now that says, remember what Amalek did to you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: Right. But I I think it's shallow. And I think ultimately it doesn't get us where we need to go.
0: Well, well, my question is, do you think it could potentially be a healthy thing, Mm -hmm. not to necessarily think that they are Amalek, but to... Acknowledge that when an enemy does to us what Hamas did to us, we need to treat them yeah. as if they were. I don't.
1: I don't need Amalek to exist to to fight an enemy. Mm-hmm. Meaning, we have there, there are three holy wars in our Torah. Okay, mm-hmm. there are three wars that we categorize as milhemet mitzvah. One is to conquer Eretz Israel, right. which this is, because we want Gaza back here, and, and right. there is a, and there is actually a chance that this will lead to us taking Gaza back, but nobody's saying it out loud. But I I like a no, lot of people are saying n- it. Nobody out loud. in our war cabinet is saying Thank it out loud. You. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I, but I do believe that there, there's an awareness among our security experts that the disengagement was a mistake and it needs to be reversed. It was Even worse than a mistake. It was a crime. It was a crime. But part of the problem is that even the parts of Israeli society who realize it was both a mistake and a crime are unaware that it was forced on us by George W. Bush. Correct. They just blame Sharon and stop. Uh, that, and That's that he, a problem. That he
0: had legal
2: problems with the high right. court, and he decided to deflect it. Right. It was George, It was Bush. Of
0: course. But you know what? Nowadays, if you point that out to them, they're more likely to yeah, hear it and right. agree with but, it but, but than we they need, were in the past.
1: But we need to do the work. We need to do the work of connecting policies like that to the relationship with the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, now the second um, war—that's war a mitzvah, milchemet mitzvah—is a war to defend the Jewish people when they're in danger, and that's this as well, right? The Jewish people are okay, attacked. You have to checked. fight okay. right? Amalek is the third, okay? Now, I would say when we look at the Torah, the Torah is nivoah, the Torah is prophecy. And one of the things the Torah is doing, especially Sefer Breshit, which we're finishing this week, by the way, at least till next year.
2: That's my favorite.
1: Well, it's everybody's favorite because it's familiar and it's warm and you're invested in the characters and you've been on a journey with them you've been on a journey with Avram and Sarah and Yitzchak and Rivka and Yaakov and his wives and the tribal and heads and, and Yosef right whose story might uh, be familiar to you but then when we get to Shemot everything is like it's funny it's called Shemot but In the beginning, we don't see anybody's name. Meaning it's very impersonal. And we're dealing with the nation. And we're dealing with faceless, nameless slaves in the beginning. So one of the things that the Torah is teaching us prophetically is the spiritual forces in the back end of the universe, meaning when we deal with characters in the Torah, whether it's Ishmael, whether it's Esav, whether it's Yaakov Avina, whether it's Yosef and Judah and Shimon and Levi, we're dealing with spiritual forces that shine into our world over and over and over again throughout history, right? When I learn about right. Yosef, I'm, I'm learning about the type of Jew who is in Tel Aviv and wants Israel to be a Western country and is very good at economics and very good at high-tech and very good at building armies and states. When I learn about Shimon, I'm learning about the Hilltop Youth. And when I learn about Levi, I learn about the rabbis of Haramor and the soldiers coming out of Eli. And you've
2: got a clear eye. This is a clear eye.
1: And Amalek, I think Amalek needs to be understood very clearly as well. Yeah. Amalek is the most militant, self-aware component of Esav. Okay? okay? He's the grandson of Esav. Um, and if anybody wants to learn Sefer Amalek, I highly recommend, a—I uh, would say to our listeners, an English translation of Mein Kampf. That is Sefer Amalek. If you want to understand Amalek, that is the book to, to learn.
2: Well, ironically, they're finding Mein Kampf all over Gaza yes. right now. I think it, feed, it, it okay. justifies your... But, but
1: what I would say is, well, no, I think there's other spiritual forces as well when we talk about the, well, first Amalek. Amalek is the most militant. If our sages identify Esav as Western civilization, mm-hmm. in the same way that Ishmael is Islamic civilization, Correct. I would say that Amalek is the most militant, self-aware component of Esav. You're probably locked up with a lot of these guys. Basically, That's we're talking about white nationalists. Correct. We're talking about people who, on a very deep level sense that the Jew is a threat to Western civilization, even if they can't explain why and end up grasping at conspiracy theories to tell themselves why the Jew Yeah, I spent 30 years with guys like that. Right. That's Amalek. Amalek are the white nationalists, the most militant, self-aware component of Western civilization that is screaming, screaming to find ways to stop this entire civilization from moving off the cliff. Replacement,
2: replacement theory. Right. Yeah.
1: Now, the Philistines in the Torah... According to the Gonavilna, Vilna, the Philistines have a very unique function. My ancestors. yeah, yeah your yeah, descendant of the Gora?
2: Direct descendant of the Torah.
1: Amen, you are. So, so the <laughs> Vilna Gon explains on Sefer Chabakuk that the Philistines exist in history only when Israel enters our land to take possession of it in order to push back against our sovereignty and force us to figure out our identity. That is the purpose of the Philistines and the Gonavilna Vilna even says that in the future, when Israel returns to its land, suddenly the Philistines will appear out of nowhere. There'll be a nation that didn't exist yesterday, that now calls itself- Sounds like Palestinians. Yeah. And it's functioning. He says that it will force us to figure out our identity. Because, and think about it: without Palestinians in this country, what would Israel? We'd would... be at civil war, by now. Or, 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 or the truth is, we probably the Yehuda side of Israeli society might have lost a civil war, and we would just be like a Hebrew-speaking Scandinavian a Hebrew-speaking country. Although, if we
0: had to go to civil war now, I'm not so sure who would lose.
1: Well, okay, we don't want to go to civil war. I know. <laughs> but, but I'm saying that that the Philistines, including Hamas, I think serve a function to help
2: us figure out who we are. They just, Hamas just saved us from civil war. Okay,
0: look. We were there, fighting
1: there, there, over Yom Kippur and Tel Aviv.
2: Correct, look, there's an argument that Judaism flourishes only under threat. And you know, when we, when we look at the, the Galut, the diaspora in particular, you know, there's a situation where when things are really good, mm. assimilation rates mm. rise, you have people just going off the derech constantly, and uh, it's, it's impossible. That's true in our Yaakov form, not in our
1: Yisra'el form.
2: Meaning that's true when
1: we're Galuti. If you go to Hebron, if you talk to the Jews in Mm Hebron, or or you talk to the Jews in Betel, or if you talk to the Jews in Kedumim, or in Yitzhar, they don't need the external
2: threats to be who they are. Because there's a a strong, independent Uh, Jewish identity uh, that could grow in our own land. You're right. The Jews are brothers and sisters in the territories that are tilling the land, that are growing grapes, that are just there don't need an external threat to understand uh, why they're there. Um,
1: but some of our tribes do. Some of the tribes of Israel require that. I don't that.
0: necessarily um, know that they need, in the land, need that external threat, but maybe at this point in time they do because we haven't yet actually defined for ourselves mm-hmm. what that is, and, and that's okay. kind of like the crux of what we're talking about The right. galut
2: mentality. Right. The, galut right. me- the galut mentality. So, so we have tools,
1: meaning we obviously are in agreement that, that Israel's main challenge right now is I mean you you say ridding us of the Galut mentality. Mm-hmm. I would say it in more scientific terms, maybe decolonizing Jewish identity. I think <laughs> that um, okay. I
2: maybe that's a more acceptable way for <laughs> me to put that. But most of the Jews that I talk to mm-hmm. from the from Galut understand precisely what I'm saying. Yes. No. But, no. No. You no, know, it, it, I, I just within the Jewish
0: probably more so than they understand. Pro- yes. I, I, absolutely. absolutely.
2: The group tonight that I'm going to talk to, mm-hmm. I'm going to use the Galut mentality. Mm-hmm. Because they've just come from uh, uh, the South, Mm -hmm. and basically what they've seen down there is Kishinev on steroids, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to refer to it as that.
1: So I I, I would say that we have tools, meaning what we've done, like let's say the Zionists, what did Zionism do? They took European nationalism, which at the time was an enemy ideology. Meaning it was used either to oppress us or assimilate us. Assimilate us. Right? Now, what what did the Zionists do? They took this. Now, it's true that European nationalism was ironically based on ancient Israelite nationalism. But without getting into that, the Zionists took European nationalism, made a uniquely Jewish flavor of it. They repurposed it in order to bring us home, in order to be used towards Jewish liberation. Now, there are a lot of ideologies in the world. Some people call it wokeism. But there are a lot of ideologies in the world, whether it's critical race theory, whether it's uh, just revolutionary theory more broadly, post-colonial theory, that are used… Identity.
2: Identity politics.
1: All all these things are perceived by a lot of Israelis and pro-Israel Jews as enemy ideologies. But I don't think any more so than European nationalism was. And what we really need to do is treat each one like an eshet yifator. Like uh, we need to conquer them and we need to shave their heads and we need to grow out their nails and we need to repurpose them towards the Geula process. We need to repurpose them towards Jewish liberation. And if we are going to cure our people of a gulut mentality, then we need to really look at the teachings of Frantz Fanon and Albert Memmi and think about how we can apply post-colonial theory to the Jewish people today. That
2: was my background. Mm -hmm. You know, the wretched of the earth. By Franz Fanon. Yeah, that was like essential reading when I was in university mm-hmm. back in the '70s. It's
0: still essential reading. <laughs>
2: it's still essential reading, but I think for I for would the Jews, at, it's essential for, reading. It's Did essential I... re- right for the Jews. The Jews have to decolonize their minds. Mm-hmm. Literally, they have to. We we have to decolonize. I went through 30 years of decolonization. It was a very radical mm-hmm. form, but I found myself. 150 meters underground at the bottom of a, a pit, literally, uh, in a three-square-meter cell with no way up except either by suicide or confession. And it was at that point that um, I, I said, I need help. I can't do this myself. That was the beginning of my, deco- my decolonization. The, the Jews right now, when I talk to New York, New York Jews especially right now, and I will be tonight, there is something f- fundamentally changing in their outlook on life. And I tell people, I want you all to understand that what you're exhibiting is what I call genetic history. Mm-hmm. We, we understand, m- most of us understand what has happened in the past. We've tried to suppress it with ideas of assimilation and acceptance, et etc., etc., etc. But the fact of the matter is it's an, it's an unchanging aspect of our history that there will come an end to whatever community we have in the diaspora or Galun, however nice it's been. It's the and law we, of history. Right, teleological view of history, mm-hmm. right? And we can sense it. Mm-hmm. We, it may not be on a conscious level, but on a subconscious level, we know mm-hmm. this is over. We may not have the fist in the face or Kristallnacht or anything, but the accept when society accepts our diminution um, as a positive thing. As a positive thing. Right. When it becomes socially acceptable to hate us, mm-hmm. and I always joke, you know what a definition of an anti-Semite is, is somebody who hates Jews more than it's absolutely necessary. Well, okay, this is what we're exper- what you're experiencing now mm-hmm. in your communities in New York. And this is a gift from God. This is a, a, a like a canary in the coal mine type phenomenon where God has given you the ability to survive by packing your bags mm-hmm. and coming home. This is your home mm-hmm. right now, here. My message to them? all of them is you don't have to go through Bieri and Kfar Aza and all these other places or 30 years in hell to suddenly realize you're a Jew. You're different. You're distinct. We have a different mission in life. Mm. Everything is in Torah. And the Torah says go home. or
1: you know your home is here.
2: We have thousands of years of this type of of awareness at our fingertips. Just go read the Tanakh. Become aware of your history, of your differences. And as far as our enemies are concerned, they can be found almost on every page of Tanakh. They're all there. Mm -hmm. in one form or another. Right,
1: and it's important when we fight, back to the Amalek question, when we fight an enemy, it's important for us to fight effectively to know the spiritual force behind it that we're fighting. And if we call every enemy who draws too much blood from us, Well, that's like
2: overusing the Holocaust analogy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's like the Hurban, you know, Mm -hmm. what they did. Well, it isn't. Mm -hmm. And it's improper to actually apply this description for this. So I, I understand that it's just... I think when I saw that sign outside a community that was so far away from where I am. It was advancement for them. It It was was, advancement. 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 Because they actually knew what Amalek was. Wow, that's the beginning.
0: And so that just kind of like wrapped this whole episode up into a low here. I think that you see this in the Israeli consciousness so much more than you can see it in the American consciousness, this kind of realization of, oh, we're something unique, we're something special. We're actually not Americans. We have a relationship to the Americans. We're not, and and yes, the propaganda that the state of Israel has been putting out has been trying to lump us into the same civilization. As the West, but I think amongst the people, we're,
2: we're fighting Western civilization's war right now. Yeah, I've yeah heard, I heard that. But I think
0: amongst the people, there's this low realization that oh, that's they're actually something else. We see what's going on in their civilization. We don't relate we to it to at all. We're at separate, all. and we're kind of starting to have this internal question of: We're the Jews. Maybe we should just kind of be the Jews and well, be comfortable this is being what, the Jews. What
2: Esther th- literally threw in my face with her last breaths which was the war that's coming, Mm -hmm. will be over the the identity of the state. This will make us or break us whether we we go the right way or not. And I'm sorry that it took October 7th, but I think we have the potential now to go down the right way right now.
0: That's very true. All
1: right. So um, first of all, thank you for your time. I think My that pleasure. this really uh, this was a great conversation, an important conversation for many of our listeners. Maybe a difficult conversation for some of them to hear, but that's important. You know, you know so. also and uh, obviously we wish you success with everything that you're doing Thank and you. uh hope that you'll have an influence, you know, the things you've been saying and especially in regards to our relationship with the United States will spread and spread and spread and more and more Israelis will understand it. I think that uh, just because of your unique situation and what you've been through and and what you've had to sacrifice for the Jewish people you're in a unique position to speak and to be heard on issues pertaining to our relationship with the Empire and so uh, I hope that you're really able to maximize your potential to do that. I hope so too. And uh, Lizzie, always a pleasure to do these shows together with you.
0: Yeah, agreed. Um,
1: If listeners are interested in helping us produce these shows, you can go to patreon.com slash vision movement and become a patron uh, at whatever tier works best for you. And in addition to supporting uh, shows like these, you'll also be uh, given access to exclusive content. And uh, if anybody's interested in checking out the show notes to this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 112.